a question that I have. Don't answer this out loud. Just This is not for, not for um, everybody else's ears, but just reflecting to yourself. Just a question. How often do you read the Bible? How often are you spending time in Scripture? Is it every day? Every week? Listen, like, you can't count, like, today in church we're going to read the Bible together. Like, don't count that. But if, if, if we don't count that, you know, is it every week? And I guess if I'm being fair, which I need to be, I won't count in my, you know, internal answer. I won't count the, the time that I spend reading the Bible because I have to prepare a sermon because I could just really feel really good about myself. Hey, guys, I read the Bible every day this week a lot for a lot of time. Yeah, every time I opened up my Google Docs so I could work on this. You know, that's cheating a little bit. It's kind of my job to read the Bible some weeks. But how often are we reading Scripture? How often are we spending time in God's Word? It's no surprise that people actually study this. And I, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but my, my degree is in psychology. And so I'm a, I'm a fan of research and statistics. I'm kind of a nerd that way. So I apologize if I throw too many of those at you. But I, I just love studies that pick apart things in a, in a systematic way. So people study the Barna Group. Um, they did some research in 2016. They found that about a third of us Americans, one-third read the Bible once a week or more. And so, I'm not super good at math, but I can do that math. That means that leaves two-thirds of us that are reading it less frequently than once a week or more. But now again, not answering out loud, just, just reflecting to yourself. Another question. How did that make you feel when I asked you that? What was the, like, the thought or the emotion that was stirred up when I asked the question, how often do you read the Bible? I just want you to kind of notice that. And I'm super curious. I wish that we had time to dialogue. And, and maybe, if, maybe if something you know, is particularly striking in your own response, you can catch me after church and just tell me what you think about that. But just notice like, that emotion or that thought that that stirs up. But since we don't have time to just dialogue this morning in this particular context, I'll just tell you that for me, um, that's a pretty easy answer. For years, for years and years, I'm almost 40 now, so I could say for decades, I'm so old, oh my goodness, you guys, I'm so old, like 200 years old, bring me a chair, right? Um, That question has always brought up this like singular really intense response and it's unequivocal shame because for most of my life the context of church that I was in I don't know they taught us that any Christian that was worth their salt you know had a consistent regular daily quiet time that's what you have to call it. You have to call it quiet time or devotions, right? And the earlier you do that, the better. Like you get brownie points if you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and have your quiet time. And the longer you spend doing that, that's better too, right? You get, get points for, you know, people go, I spent two hours in quiet time this morning. 
and pat ourselves on the back. And it's funny because most of the time when people use that phrase quiet time, it includes like that petitionary prayer, like you have your list of people that please God bless Aunt Sally who's having surgery this week and there's like this list. So that's not really actually quiet. Uh, it's just a little bit of a, a dissonance there. But of course it includes reading scripture in your quiet time. And somehow, I don't, know, I don't know what the answer was, like the people that I had in my life that taught me about reading the Bible and tried to disciple me in that way early on in my faith journey, I don't know if they didn't know or if they just didn't know how to communicate how, how beautiful and how important and how amazing and how beneficial it is to spend time reading the words of a God who loves us unconditionally and intensely and passionately. I don't know if they, if they knew how to communicate that, but, but it was lost on me. What I understood was that this was a chore. This reduced Bible reading for me to a chore, a drudgery. It was like you had to check off the box a things-to-do list, and you had to do this to consider yourself to be in right standing with God. But I've never really been good at being good. Being good. I've never been good at it. I've never mastered it. And I'm not sure if I ever will. Ever. So the truth is, before God and everybody here, I have never in my Christian life been successful for a significant amount of time in having a consistent regular, daily, quiet time. If we're defining it the way that those people that discipled me early on would have defined it. And so that means that the dreaded question, how are your quiet times? Always, without fail, just just stirred up this like visceral feeling of unworthiness in me. Because I just don't, I don't cut it in that department. Maybe you can identify. Maybe not. Maybe some people don't struggle with this at all. And that's, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful blessing. But maybe you can identify. Maybe you have struggled with the perspective of scripture as being a chore. Boxes to be checked. And you know what? I just have to say, it doesn't help that in a lot of, in a lot of places, uh, it, could be, it could be a good tool. But like in January, they hand out those little brochures that have the year-long Bible reading plan, and it literally has checkboxes next to the chapter you're supposed to read on the day that you're supposed to read it. Is anybody else who's used one of those before? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but who, who got bogged down in Leviticus and you quit? And don't lie, God, like God knows. He knows the truth. Like, oh, Levit- I'm out. I'm out. Halfway through Leviticus. My willpower is only so powerful. Mm, Doesn't it? It just feels exhausting sometimes. All of the expectations, the way that we frame this. So part of what we're always trying to remind ourselves here at Vineyard is that the expectations that religion has imposed on people do not always correspond with the actual expectations of God. And we want to be relentless in breaking down those walls 
in exposing those false, um, false motivations that actually bring us further away from what God really intends to accomplish in our life and what he actually expects of us. Because we don't want to be perpetuating that separation between people and God. But what we're also very passionate about is communicating the truth that those false expectations are trying to obscure. It's not enough to say, well, that's not the reason we should do it. We have to talk about the reasons why we should. And so in this, today, our first installment of a summer sermon series that we're, that we're, we're launching, uh, we're going to explore together the story of Nehemiah. And today I want to answer three questions just as we set out on this journey together. Three questions I'm going to answer. First, why the Bible? Why? And second, why together? And then finally, why, why Nehemiah? Why should we care about this story in particular? So we'll start with why the Bible. I spent a considerable amount of time this morning and in my, in my life, in my journey of faith, um, deconstructing that old narrative of why we should not read the Bible. Of, like the reasons, what should not be our reasons, what our motivation should not be. I spent a significant amount of time on that. But I, I love the Bible. I love it. I love spending time reading. I really do. That's the truth. That's not like I have to say that because I'm the pastor. I really love God's word. I love reading this beautifully diverse, it's a compilation of these amazing stories and poetry and, and letters and communication. So how, how did I get from checkboxes to falling in love with God's word? How did I get from there to there? There's a couple of things that happened over the years. Number one, first of all, I, you know, I had to get some upgrades in my perspective about who God was and, and, and how he saw me and what he expected of me. That's the first thing. That's the starting place. If you have a, a skewed idea of who God is and what he thinks about you, then that's going to, of course, trickle down and inform the way that you view scripture. So that was one thing. But as far as really specifically scripture was concerned, the game changer for me was when I stopped looking at Bible verses like refrigerator magnets and cross-stitch hangings. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like one verse or maybe a few of them, and it, you just pick it up out of, the, out of the page, wherever it is. doesn't matter what's around it. doesn't matter what the context is. You pick it up and you experience it in isolation. Refrigerator magnets and cross-stitch hangings. That approach to scripture lends itself to a view of the Bible as a rule book or a things to do list because you, you can separate those things out into line items and it makes it easier to see it that way. And that approach to scripture also lends itself to confusion because there is tons of stuff in the Bible. I mean, let's just be honest. There's tons of stuff that doesn't make a bit of sense if you just lifted one verse and set it aside in isolation by itself. Doesn't make a bit of sense. We can't unmoor these passages from their larger context. 
around the same time that all of this was kind of happening internally for me, it was probably about 10, 12 years ago, something like that, I went to a, a really cool workshop. And the teacher taught through what he referred to as the meta-narrative of scripture. And all it meant was just the big story, the overarching storyline of the Bible, the Bible as like one cohesive narrative. He hit the high points of the plot of this beautiful tale that's it's God's creation and his pursuit and his redemption and his love for humanity. And it, it's all connected. It really is. And we have to know the bigger story if we want the details to make more sense. But the overarching truth is that God has always loved us He has always wanted us. He's always chased us down. And he's always intervening and breaking into history. And we have to understand that because if we understand that he is the God who intervenes, who comes near in human history, then we can understand that he is also the God who comes near to you and to I. He breaks in. He intervenes in your story and my story. So then when I read things like nothing can separate you from the love of God, it means something so much more than just a nice platitude on my Bible verse of the day wall calendar. Because it fits into the whole story, the big story. Of course, of course, the Bible matters, and of course, there are principles for living life in the Bible that help us to align ourselves with who God is, to live a life that is aligned with his. Of course, there are principles for living, but it's not, it's not a rule book. It's not a things-to-do list. It's not seven steps to prosperity, 14 steps to success, and because this one's really complicated, 45 steps to holiness. There's a lot of steps in there. At least there was for me. I don't know. Maybe you guys could do it in three. It's not a rule book. It's a love story. It's a love story, and it's a love letter from God to us. When I was the age, like, to start dating and, like, have, you know, more than just holding hands on the playground or something, you know, relationships with boys. When I was that age, it was before the internet was, like, like a widespread thing, like, that everyone had in their house, okay? So, like I said, I'm almost 40, so, you know, some of you can't even imagine a world where there's no Facebook or email or anything like that. But before, you know, before... We had this ancient thing called mail, you know, that someone would bring to your house. And I had, I had boys that would, would write me letters. And I can still remember the feeling of waiting for that promised letter to come in the mail. 
And I can still remember holding that, that in my hand and, and just reading it over and over again. And don't make fun of me, but like sleeping with it under my pillow, right? That was precious communication. It was precious. And it's not like I said, oh, gosh, another letter. I guess I'll have to read it now. I better set aside some quiet time so I can do that. No, no, you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait for that. So why the Bible? Why? Because it's God's love letter to us. It's precious communication. So I'm going to ask you guys to the very best of your ability to hold that picture in your heart as we as a congregation are going to collectively explore the book of Nehemiah this summer. And what I'm asking each of you to do is to consider reading along with us we're going to go slow. We're going to take our time. So we're, we're going to look at one chapter every week. And they're not, they're not super long chapters and they're not super complicated. So it's pretty doable. So I want to invite you to consider reading along each week before you come to church. Um, this week we're looking at chapter one. So for next week you would, you would read chapter two. Um, one chapter a week, except for the last couple weeks, because there's a couple chapters in the book that are like basically just lists of names, and it's a little bit tricky to build a sermon around that. So we'll, we'll double up a couple of times toward the end of the summer. But why together? Why, why do we want to do this together? Because within community is the primary way that Scripture was meant to be experienced within community. We are, we are a very individualistic culture, and so we have a lot of trouble wrapping our minds around this, but that's not the way Scripture was treated historically. The Old Testament law was typically read in a group in community. The letters that were written to the churches, they were addressed to a congregation, to a group of people, and they would typically have been read aloud in their entirety. So we would get a letter from the Apostle Paul, and I would call you guys or you know, send you a scroll or whatever we did back then and say, okay, come on, everybody, we're going to get together at the church, and Paul sent us a letter, and I'm going to read it to you. And we would experience that together. There's something that's really important about the collective experience in the body of Christ. Ways that we experience God's presence and his voice through community together that we just can't duplicate when we're in isolation. And now don't, I'm not saying our individual experiences aren't important. Of course they are. Of course they are. It's not an either or, right? We don't do either or around here. We do both and. So So follow along, read along, discuss on Facebook, take your friend down to the pub house and talk about ancient building techniques over a pint. You know, just engage with this. Let's do this together. Our teaching team is going to rotate the same way that we've been doing for the past year. And we do that because we really think that there's something special and there's something important about the way that 
the different perspectives that each of us bring, the different styles that we have, the different experiences that we have had, they bring this richness and this diversity to the way that we understand and experience God's word. And so we rotate because, you know, you don't want to hear me talk all the time. We need each other. We need each other. None of this church stuff, none of this Jesus stuff was meant to be done alone. It's all in every capacity of of life in the church. We're meant to do things together. It's important. But most exciting, though, is the answer to the question, why Nehemiah? Why Nehemiah? This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I don't know if you guys are familiar. If you're not, you're in for a treat. One of my favorite stories, I first grew to love this book when I was a teenager, and I was trying to figure out what faith looked like in a life that sometimes felt like it was in ruins. The story of the Israelites, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, it has some parallels with my story, and maybe with yours. They seem to be locked throughout the course of their history, into this cycle. It was this repetitive cycle, and who knows, I don't know, maybe they're still locked in it today. I don't know, but God, God made a covenant with Israel, and it was simple. It was simple if we're summing it up. God said, if you follow my guidelines, if you stay within my boundaries, then you'll be blessed, and so will all the people that you have influence over, all the people that you come in contact with. You'll have the opportunity to be blessed and be a blessing. But if you ignore my guidelines, you're going to get yourselves in trouble. That's basically it. And trouble oftentimes looked like being conquered by another nation and being brought into captivity and into slavery. And during the time frame in which the story of Nehemiah takes place, that's what had happened to the Israelites. They were in a period of time in which that was the reality of, of where they were at as a people. The Babylonians had leveled the city of Jerusalem and they'd taken the people captive and made them slaves. Now the Babylonians were subsequently, because we're talking about like over a century's worth of time between the initial captivity and when Nehemiah was working on rebuilding the wall, 150 years or so, but somewhere in in that time frame, um, the Babylonians got conquered by someone else, and so now the Persians were the ones that were ruling over the people of Israel. And there had already been a couple of waves of people that were were going back to resettle Jerusalem. Um, There was a, a man named Zerubbabel, that's fun to say, And he worked on overseeing the rebuilding of the temple. And then Ezra, that's um, the book that comes just before Nehemiah in the Old Testament is Ezra. And Ezra worked really hard to reestablish, like, adhering to the, the law. You might consider reading Ezra you know, just as background for what we're going to look at, because originally they were, they were lumped together. They weren't two separate books. They're part of the same story of, of this whole period of time, so Ezra. But for a variety of reasons, even though a couple of waves of people had gone back to the city, nobody took on the task of rebuilding the wall around the city. And that 
that did a couple of things. It, it not only left them vulnerable to attack, which we can probably you know, imagine that that was a pretty important function of a wall in ancient times is that, you know, that allowed you to protect your borders. But also, it left it without definition, without that physical symbol of identity. Identity for those people. And Nehemiah was a Jewish man who was serving at a high level for the foreign government. He was a cupbearer to the king. And that was the guy, the cupbearer was the guy that had to taste everything before the king got it so that they could make sure it wasn't poisoned. So that meant that he was a trusted protector and he was a probable advisor to, at this point, this ruler that was from Persia. And Nehemiah got word because some, someone who had been back to Jerusalem came you know, to visit the city that he was in. And he heard the news that the wall of Jerusalem was still a pile of rubble. In spite of all the work that had been going on for all those years, it was still a wreck. And it broke his heart. So I want to finish today by reading from the first chapter of Nehemiah. You can turn there with me if you like. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, we've got Bibles in the windowsill if, if you like a paper copy or you're free to use your Wi-Fi or, you know, just follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me. But Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll start in verse 3. This is Nehemiah speaking. He said, They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then Nehemiah, he prays this spectacularly just passionate prayer reminding God of his promises. God made promises to the, to the nation of Israel. And Nehemiah reminded God of what he had promised. Even as he is humbling himself. In confession and repentance for himself, for his family, on behalf of their nation. Nehemiah prays as he is preparing to go into the presence of the Persian king. Fully expecting that God will orchestrate the provision that he needs to, to be able to rebuild the wall and restore the people of Israel. In verse 5, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, I love this, who keeps his covenant of love. He keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying for you. Pay attention to me. This is important. 
Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. We have messed up. We absolutely have. Verse 8, remember, Nehemiah is talking to God. We need to remind God of things sometimes. It's not that he forgets, but there's some mechanism there of saying, remember what you said to me. We're really reminding ourselves. Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But, but, if you return to me and you obey my commands, then even if, even if, gosh, this just wrecks me because this is my story. You understand me? This is my story. Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, no matter how far away from me they are, I will gather them and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and they are your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And give me, your servant, success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, which was referring to the king that he was about to see. Nehemiah's heart was broken for the devastation that had been inflicted, but he had every confidence, every confidence that God, his God, would restore. And what's more, Nehemiah understood that this would be a joint effort, a partnership between God and his people. We don't have to search very hard here for application in our own lives. I can tell you truthfully, I have mourned for ruined things. Broken and burned and scattered things in my life. And I have seen, I have seen my God make a way. I have watched him redeem. That is my favorite word about what God does. He redeems everything and he restores. And he's done that through the attacks of the enemy against me. And he's done that through the captivities of my own making. Time and time and time and time again. And I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain that there are parallels here for our church community. And that's one of the reasons that we chose this book. We've been through a tough season. We're still in a tough season in a lot of ways. Most of you know, but if you've started attending in the last year or so, you may not be aware 
that last summer, our lead pastor of 10 years made a difficult decision to resign. And he served this church faithfully for 17 years. He was a good, good man. But pastoring is hard. Like selfishly, I really want you guys to understand that so that, you know, you'll, you'll be gracious with me. But pastoring is hard. The wear and tear on a family is just huge. And so he made a difficult but good decision to take care of his family. But how many of you know it's true that the, the right things are often the hard things? Sometimes the hardest things. And this transition has not been easy for our congregation. It's been difficult in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that, you know, challenges that have come from that. And, and there were many people that made the decision that they could not continue with us here. And that's hard. But I have watched God care for his vineyard. We have prayed, like Nehemiah, that God would keep his covenant of love with us. That he would keep his covenant of love. And we are surviving. And we are beginning to thrive again. There are wonderful, good things happening here. God is rebuilding and he is restoring what has been ruined and what has been scattered. And it's beautiful. He's not finished with us yet. He's absolutely not finished with us yet. We have a calling in this city. We do. Vineyard Church has a calling in the city of Rolla. We have a sacred identity. Does it make us, I'm not saying better than other people, but different, distinct. We have identity that God has called us to. And he's going to be faithful to partner with us in the rebuilding. Work is already underway. And there's a place for you. You're needed. You're needed in the effort. What about you? Are there ruins in your world? Is there anything torn down, burned up, broken or scattered? A dream that you have? A prayer you've prayed for a long time? And not seen come to pass. A relationship. Your heart. Sometimes our hearts are just broken. Because life. Is tough. But do you know that God is in the business of repairing things? Of rebuilding things? of restoring things, of redeeming things. He most certainly, definitely is.
So may you and I, because I need this. I'm always preaching to myself. Always preaching to myself. I need this. But may, may you and I and everybody here, may we all find hope in the story of Nehemiah as we make this journey together this summer. Hope. Hope in the God that faithfully breaks into our stories time and time again, just exactly when we need him the most.